I know the first isn't technically until tomorrow, but what, what a wonderful way to start the new year. Thank you. Um, you may not realize it. <clears throat> this is so great right here. Uh, you realize that. That's true. Um, you know, I uh, had asked Trevor if he wanted to race me to the top, and he said yes, and I was like, shoot. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't ask him that. But we'll ignore that for a few weeks, and we'll just, by the time they're finished, you won't even notice it when you walk in. It'll just kind of be, um, I'm expecting Elvis to start singing Jailhouse Rock up there. A few of y'all know that reference. Um, anyway, enough about that. Beautiful. Just a few weeks. Y'all bear with us. It'll just, just a few weeks. Um, this Saturday is the anniversary of a major event. This Saturday is January the 6th. I'll just lost half of you, but no, not that January the 6th. Not that one. This Saturday is the 30th anniversary of January 6th, 1994. Yeah. Y'all are like, okay. You don't remember that date, but you remember what happened. I guarantee you remember what happened. Because even if you don't typically follow competitive women's figure skating, you know what happened on that day in Detroit, Michigan, as one Nancy Kerrigan was practicing on the ice for the Olympic trials. A man charged out from the tunnel onto the ice and with some sort of a metal like a pipe clubbed her on the knee while she was warming up. Now y'all remember? Yeah, okay. Some of y'all don't remember, but that's okay. My kids are like, huh? Um, They did, it's true. Grant, it's true. Uh, And you can picture her, can't you, right now in your mind. Sitting on the ice, Clutching her leg, you see that look on her face. I know you do. If you don't, close your eyes, you'll see it. And what is she crying? Do you remember? Why? Now do you remember? Why? 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 She's just repeating it, right? See, I told you you could see it. In those moments, while she sat there bawling on the ice, clutching her knee, she vocalized the one question that we have all asked at some point or another in our lives. And if we've asked it once, we've asked it thousands of times. Why? Why? Why is one of the first words uh, we learn. One of the first questions we learn in life, isn't it? Why? Because I said so. I just, this is the best day of my life when I got to repeat that as a parent, because I said so. But why? Because I said so. But why? Because I'm your father, because I said so, right? You don't have to teach it. And when we find ourselves on the receiving end of trials, of difficulties, of tragedies, of different difficult, excuse me, circumstances, we so often ask the question, why? 
If you have your Bible this morning, open it, please, to the book of James. The book of James. James's letter, very simply, is about helping Christians to live like Christians, okay? James wants the reader of his letter to grow in their faith, to grow in understanding, to grow in knowledge, and to grow in spiritual maturity. And so he begins the letter with some instruction on a subject that we can all relate to. He begins with the subject of trials. Now, uh, some of the reformers, Luther in particular, didn't really like the book of James because he thought it was too focused on works. But as you read the book of James, what you realize is the works in the letter of James are not works in order to be saved or in order to become a Christian. Rather, what we read in the book of James is is how we're going to act and live and think and do as believers, as Christians, right? And so he begins with this subject of trials in our lives. Now, that matters historically because his original audience were Christians who had just been scattered in the city of Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen that we read about in the book of Acts. And so after Stephen's martyrdom, um, there began to be a persecution of the Christians there in Jerusalem, and not by Rome, but by, uh, by the, the Jewish leaders. And so the Christians began then to scatter to the outskirts and to points beyond uh, Jerusalem. And so he wrote this for them, and he writes this for us um, so that we can be grounded and grow as disciples of Christ Jesus. And so he begins with this, because he knew if there was anything they understood at this point, they understood trials, difficulties, even persecution. And we all understand trials. Yours are different than mine, And mine are different than yours, and yours are probably different than somebody sitting right next to you. But we all experience them, and we have all wondered at some point or another, and probably even asked the question out loud, why? Maybe you've thought, I am a Christian, I love the Lord, I walk with him, I read my Bible every day, I pray, I go to church, I give, I do all the things I'm supposed to do as a believer. Why is he allowing me to go through this? Well, James' letter uh, gives us some answers to that question. So if you have found the the book of James, I'm gonna invite you please to stand and we will read together verses one through four. James, a bond servant of Christ and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these very short few verses that teach us so much. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Uh, Father, may you speak clearly as the messenger becomes irrelevant, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you'll go ahead and be seated. So why? Why with regards to life's trials? Well, James gives a few principles here this morning that help us to understand God's purposes 
and allowing us to go through all kinds of trials and difficult circumstances in our lives. The first thing I want you to see is this, that trials are expected events in the lives of believers. Trials are expected events in the lives of believers. You know, there's this whole school of thought out there. If you watch enough religious broadcasting, you will no doubt come across it. Um, that that kind of teaches that, you know, with the right amount of faith or with saying the right words, you know, you, you can have a life that is your best life now. Um, above, you know, no, no difficulties, all the wealth you could ever need, no sickness, you know, you'll come across that. Um, but James, half-brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter under authority of the Holy Spirit, uh, would not agree with that. He says, no. As a believer, you're not exempt from trials. They're expected events. And you see that there in verse two, because he says, brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, my translation calls them various trials. If you have a, a King James or an older version, uh, yours might say the word patience. I mean, excuse me, uh, diverse temptations. That's point two. Uh, diverse temptations, it might say that. Um, the word is for things that put a person to the test. And these can be difficulties that come from the outside or inner moral tests such as temptations to sin. And we see James use the same word, the Greek word, uh, parasmoies, both times. We see both uses here in chapter one. Later on in chapter one, which we won't deal with today, he says, don't let anybody, when you are tempted, and he uses the same Greek word there, uh, blame God, right? In that, in that instance, he's referring to, to those inner temptations to sin. Here in verse two, when he's talking about these various trials, or if King James, diverse temptations, he's talking about things that are coming from the outside, things that are happening to us or coming up on us in a way. And so these are external trials, trials, difficulties, tragedies that come from outside of ourselves uh, through, through no fault of our own very often. And James says we are to count it all joy when we face these various trials. And you might even write out to the side there, whenever, whenever. Because we read in verse two, uh, he's not saying like, if you should happen to fall into these trials or whatever, he says when, and it's a, it's a word for when that's like at any moment, at any given time, this could happen to you. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you, whenever you face uh, various, various trials or fall into various trials. And uh, so no, it's not going to be easy just because we've trusted in Christ for salvation. Praise God, he delivers us from our sin. Um, but that's just the beginning. Over in John 16, we referenced this back in November during the missions month when I preached, Jesus is teaching his apostles concerning the Holy Spirit, concerning the kingdom of God, concerning future events. He's trying to get them to see the bigger picture, look beyond themselves and see the bigger picture. And he tells them in John 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. In other words, he's telling the disciples that he wants them to have inner peace from knowing that he has overcome the world, even though in this life, we will still face trials of many kinds. Yes, the day is coming 
There will be no more death. We just sing about this. The day is coming. There will be no more death, no more sickness, no more sorrow. He will set all things right. But that day is just not here quite yet. And so in the meantime, we face trials of many kinds. I told you all this in November. You go back and listen online. I don't think a sermon goes by when I preach that I don't mention that we are in the kingdom of God. We're already not yet. He has already defeated death. We are just not yet to the point in history where we experience his victory in all of its facets. We're waiting for his second coming. So he's gonna set it all right. He's going to make it all better. There will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more trials. No more difficult family members. Terrible bosses. In-laws. They're not here today, so I can say that. But in the meantime, we face trials of many kinds. Paul and Barnabas understood this too, didn't they, in Acts 14? Verse 22 of Acts 14, they returned to the cities of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul and Barnabas knew they were starting these new churches, people who were new in their faith, they wanted them to stand firm in spite of their trials. And so for Jesus, Paul, Barnabas, and here in James, it was simply an understood, foregone conclusion that trials are expected events in the lives of believers. That is true for you and for me as well. I wanna show you this also. Um, They won't necessarily come one at a time. Don't you wish they would, right? God sends you like a difficult circumstance at work or something. And you pray and you turn it over to him and he gives you his wisdom and he gives you what you need to get through it and you get through it and you learn from it and you wipe your brow and okay, God, I'm ready for the next one. And then he sends you an illness and you work through that and then maybe he sends you a financial crunch and then you work through that and it would be so great if they all would just come one at a time, right? But the Greek word here that James uses uh, conveys the idea of being surrounded. And when he says, when it says fall into, the word actually starts with the prefix peri, like periscope or peripheral vision. It's like this looking all around, being all around. So it's almost like falling into a giant pit and then all of a sudden, when you fall into a giant pit, of course, you're just surrounded by all the walls of the pit, right? This is the image of the word that James uses here. It's you're, you're surrounded on all sides by trials. <laughs> that means you might have an illness in the family and trouble at work and a financial crunch and a broken relationship and a whole host of other things all at the same time. Can I get a witness? As long as we live in a fallen world plagued by sin, trials are a fact of life. They may come suddenly sometimes, you may not always be prepared for them, but you should never be surprised by them. So he says, count it all joy when, when you fall into various trials. And then the second principle is that they serve a particular purpose in the lives of believers. Uh, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing 
Uh, the first purpose is this, that trials prove our faith. Trials prove our faith. That knowing that the testing of your faith, he says. Uh, he uses a form of the word here that had to do with like sterling, sterling coinage, right? Coins, metal that was genuine and contained no alloys. God wants our faith to be genuine. He wants our faith to be pure. And so he puts it to the test. If you were playing in the water's edge of a river and came across some gold-colored, hard, shiny stuff that you thought might be gold, you might pick it up. But before you went to buy hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of land or invest millions of dollars in building a mine, wouldn't you probably take that stuff first to be tested, to be sure it's real, that it's the genuine article? The assayer, the tester, he might take some of that and he might hold it out over a blazing hot fire to test its properties to see if it really is gold. Do your trials ever feel like a blazing hot fire? He might take another chunk of that gold-looking material and pour acid all over it. And when he was finished putting it through those trials, he would declare to you whether or not your gold was genuine. And for your sake, I hope it is. But in much the same way, the trials we encounter in our lives test our faith. They prove if our faith is genuine. Do we really believe what we say what we believe, or are we just talking? Do we really trust God to supply all of our needs or only when things are going really well? Do we really believe that God loves us and has our long-term best interests at heart or do we only say that when all of our circumstances seem to be positive at the moment? Or do we continue to trust him when nothing makes sense? Do we trust him even when our why questions go seemingly unanswered. Trials test us and prove the authenticity of our confession. You say, well, why is it so important that our faith be proven? A couple hundred years ago, Pastor Thomas Manton said it this way. He said, because of all the graces, Satan especially hates faith. And because of all the graces God delights in, faith is the perfection. So he's gonna test it to make sure it's a genuine article. From the time that God called Abraham into a relationship with himself, he has been calling people to live by faith. Now, true confession time here, Abraham possessed a lot more faith than I think I probably do. And think about your story of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. God looks down, says, nope. These people are getting prideful. These people are putting themselves in my place. So what does he do? He scatters the people all over the world and he mixes up their languages. And that's kind of how Genesis 11 ends. It's kind of a sad, depressing picture of people scattered and not in a relationship with God, distant from God. And then in Genesis chapter 12, there's a little bit of genealogy in there, so we know some time has passed from Babel until we read about Abraham. And then it just says this, um, and then God called Abraham. 
Now, Abraham was living off in the place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which would make over by like what would be modern day Iran. And God says, go to a place that I'm gonna show you, which would be, you know, modern day Israel. God, whom people were separated from for however long that genealogy was, called Abraham. Hey, pick up all your stuff, get your family, get your household, get all your livestock, and go to a place that I'm gonna show you. No, I'm not telling you yet. I'll show you when you get there. And Abraham did it. I think he probably had a little more faith than I sometimes think I have. So he called Abraham to live by faith from the very moment that he called him. Why am I saying this? Going all the way back, God has put that faith to the test. Not because he's mean, not because he's arbitrary, not because we're wrong, but because the trials we face will prove whether or not our confession is based on genuine faith or if it's merely empty religious sounding speech. So your trials will test, will prove your faith. They also produce perseverance. Uh, these, these build on each other in a way. Your trials are not going to produce perseverance unless your faith is the genuine article, okay? The grammar in verse three uh, where he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, the grammar there is what A.T. Robertson called the genuine element in our faith that produces perseverance. So it's already been tested to prove if our faith is genuine. And now that it has been tested and proven genuine, it will produce perseverance in the lives of believers. Now, if you have an older translation, it may say patience. That's fine, as long as you remember that in the Bible, patience is never passive, okay? My translation reading from here today uses the word endurance. Again, great, as long as you remember this is not, this is not a passive thing, you know? I can kind of picture of endurance like, I've gotta endure something, and so I'm just remaining static while all this stuff is coming in around me and, and I'm enduring it, right? That's, that's not a picture of what we're talking about here. It produces perseverance. It produces, produces this ability to stand firm in spite of what's happening, uh, a stick if you will, a staying power that also keeps pressing forward. That's what we're talking about. So whether your Bible has endurance or patience or perseverance, depending on the translation, it's a standing firm in spite of all of this stuff that's coming and then just continuing to press forward. Um, you know, like the guy from the Weather Channel that always goes to the hurricanes? Maybe like him. You know, he's always like, I don't know. It's a word picture for the two of you that know what I'm talking about. Uh, right? So James is saying, hold tight to your convictions, remaining steadfast in our belief in God and in his goodness in spite of life's trials and tribulations. That's perseverance. And when I think about this kind of patient perseverance, I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, right? Young coat of many colors, favored by his father, probably got a little too braggadocious with his brothers. Let's pick up the story there. Hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused, imprisoned, and forgotten about by a friend. 
But as we read those chapters, he never loses his faith in God. He persevered in his faith, and it was that perseverant, genuine faith that ultimately paid off when God put him in a position in Egypt to help save his family from a famine back in Canaan. You see, the fact of the matter is we won't necessarily see the ultimate purposes of our trials while we're going through them. Wouldn't that be nice? You know? Okay, you know. Uh, God, I'm down here in this pit. My brothers just threw me in here. But I guess that's better than them killing me. Uh, But it's okay that I'm down here in this pit because I know that in 13 years or so, um, there's gonna be a famine and you're gonna use me to help them. He didn't know that. When he's in Potiphar's house and he gets that false accusation, he didn't know why. When he's in prison and the, the fellow prisoner, he, remember he interprets the dreams and go tell Pharaoh what his dream means and don't forget about me when you get there and he forgets about him and he stays in prison another seven years. He didn't know, well, it's okay. God just wants me to stay in prison these additional years because the time is not yet right for me to become a governor and to save my family from famine. No. He didn't know it. We don't always know the ultimate purpose while we're going through the trials. It wasn't until years later that Joseph was able to look back and understand. So we can either throw up our hands and say, well, you know what, God probably doesn't just care, or we can persevere, standing firm, trusting God, in spite of all the things that don't make sense in our human minds. I'm gonna pick up the pace a little here, guys. Third purpose is that trials promote spiritual maturity. Verse four, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials prove our genuine faith, which in the face of trials produces perseverance, which according to scripture leads us to be here perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And what's talking about perfect here is not talking about like perfection as in you'll never ever sin again. It's talking about spiritual maturity. We will grow to full spiritual maturity. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Our trials, when they're rightly faced with genuine faith and perseverance, God uses them to help us grow in spiritual maturity. God spent 25 years working on Abraham before he sent him his son of promise in the person of Isaac. You say, now wait a minute, I thought Abraham had a great faith. He did. Take your family, take your household, take all your servants, take all your livestock, take it all, and just go to a place I'm gonna show you, and I'll show you when you get there. And Abraham did it. Folks, that's faith. And yet, in spite of how great his faith already was, God still continued working on him for 25 years before he sent him Isaac. Joseph went through 13 years of proving before God was ready to use him as a part of his redemptive plan. He had been an immature young man, flaunting his status as his father's favorite. Now he was fully grown physically and spiritually with a faith that had been proven by the fires of tribulation or the the trials, and now he was ready to be used by God. And it was then, years later, that we see that scene over in Genesis chapter 50, where now there is the famine back up in the land of Canaan and Jacob has passed away and now the brothers do realize that's Joseph standing in front of them and they're afraid he's gonna take out all those years against us. He's gonna take it out on us now. And what does he do? 
He says this in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Now, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. Folks, that's spiritual maturity. To be able to look at what you went through and say, okay, I can see what God was doing. That's spiritual maturity. And it doesn't happen overnight and it seldom comes easily. Joseph grew to that point through 15 years, 13 years of trials, tests, injustices. So they serve a purpose. They prove our faith. They produce perseverance. They promote spiritual maturity. Guys, in God's economy, there is no such thing as pointless suffering, or there, at least there shouldn't be. For you, I pray, there will be no such thing as pointless suffering. May God give you maturity and eyes to see and understand. And then finally, the last thing I want you to see is this, that trial should produce a right response uh, from the lives of believers or in the lives of believers. And we're gonna jump back up to verse two for the last point where he says, consider it all joy. Consider it all joy when you face these trials. Not happiness. Happiness is often circumstantial. Joy is evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. See the difference? You see what James is saying? Like, your trials don't have to make you happy, right? You don't have to be happy about it, but you can still have joy in the midst of it because joy is an evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced through spiritual maturity. That's the difference, not to cause us to mope, not to cause us to pout that God isn't fair, Our trials are an opportunity to rejoice in the sovereign Lord, to rejoice in his word, to rejoice in his promises, to rejoice in the hope that is within you because he is within you. And I know that's easier said than done, and that is not how the flesh reacts, and that is not how the natural man or woman responds to trials. But it is a place where we can grow to through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives where we can come to a point where we have that kind of perspective. Say, you know what, this is, God, this stinks. But I will choose to have joy and to rejoice in you and your love and your wisdom and your sovereignty and your word in spite of what I'm going through in this moment. That's what he's talking about. And folks, he has been pruning and he has been proving. You know how I know that? Because he always is. He never stops. And he's been testing your faith to see if it's the genuine article, not because he's arbitrary, but because he wants you to persevere and he wants you to be a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we can look upon our trials with joy in spite of perhaps the unhappiness. We can still have joy because we know that he has plans for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plan to give you a future and a hope. So in closing, let me encourage you to think about your trials, your difficulties, your hardships, in terms of the birth of a giraffe. When a giraffe calf is born, it drops somewhere around eight feet, head first, to the ground. So think, okay, one minute, 
It's in a nice, warm, cozy, dark environment. And next thing, it is going head first into this bright, cold, light place, and bam, right on the ground, head first. Now, what that giraffe calf doesn't know is that the fall, the falling part of that is necessary, excuse me, but it's necessary to free it of that stuff. Uh, and to tear the umbilical cord away. So the fall is necessary. The draft doesn't know that. Bam, hitting the ground. Necessary. Because why? Just like a doctor will, the baby, hitting the ground, jerk, jars the, the calf, and its heart starts beating and its breath start working right. It needs, it needs that hit in order for its uh, systems to work like they're supposed to. So it falls, it falls to the ground. It doesn't know that, oh, I'm so glad I'm falling eight feet because I need to be freed of this umbilical cord. It doesn't know that. So it lands, it hits hard, and after a moment as it's laying there, the mother giraffe in all of her sweet maternal motherly love kicks it, probably kicks it. And if it doesn't get up, she kicks it again. And if it doesn't get up, she'll kick it again until the little giraffe calf finally stands up and gets up on its wobbly giraffe calf legs. And once the little baby giraffe is up on those shaking, wobbling legs, just for good measure, the mother kicks it again, knocks it off its feet. What might seem cruel and unnecessary to an onlooker is really an important moment in the development of the baby giraffe. It helps the newborn develop instincts and skills that will become necessary later on in life so it can move rapidly with the herd whenever predators are near. Folks, sometimes you may feel like that baby giraffe, like you have just gotten back on your feet after a difficult trial and something comes along like a hoof to the face and knocks you right back down again. And if you have felt that way or if you feel that way today, you are not alone. So the next time that you're surrounded by trials on all sides that don't seem to relent, just think about the baby giraffe in the context of James chapter one and rejoice knowing that there is one who is greater than ourselves who will use that experience to test you, to prove you, to teach you perseverance, and to mature you so that you can, like Joseph one day, say, God did this in order to bring it about as it is this day so that many will be saved. It's good stuff, Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for this text that I confess to you I don't always implement well. Lord, I don't always have the right attitude. I don't always respond right. I don't always feel joyful, Lord. Rejoice in you uh, when I'm going through trials. So God, for me personally, I pray that you would help me to remember the inspired words of James 
and the illustration of the baby giraffe, God, and to trust you, to trust you and to remain joyful in your love and your wisdom and your sovereignty. Thank you for making us mature, Lord, even when we don't always want to be made mature. And Father, as we walk into a new year, uh, we pray that you would give us the supernatural perspective on whatever trials we may face in this coming year. We might give you the glory you deserve in all things, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We're about to have a time of response, and you might be like, okay, Stuart, listen, that absolutely made no sense to me whatsoever. And if that's the case, it might just be because you've never placed your faith in Jesus in the first place. Because let me tell you, outside of a relationship with Christ, outside of the walk with God through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, this makes no kind of sense at all to a natural mind. So I would invite you today, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Come to God the Father and say, uh, no more trying to do what I can do to earn your salvation. I'm gonna trust in what Christ alone has done. So if that's you, we're gonna stand and sing in just a minute. And if that is you, just come tell me that. I'm gonna be standing right there down front. Come tell me and say, I wanna trust Jesus today. I want 